I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found check battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Shut up and sit down. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Tacticam. Tacticam is the easiest way to begin filming your hunts, whether it's from the budget-friendly Solo or the 4K Tacticam 5.0. Tacticam has something for all levels of self-filmers. They even have the ability for you uh, crossbow guys or rifle guys to capture your shot through the scope um, with their film through scope system. So uh, it's basically like a periscope that goes on your scope. And it attaches to the Tacticam, and it everything that you see through the scope is recorded on the Tacticam. This week's episode, we have John Eberhart on the show to talk to you about his seven strategies for taking nocturnal bucks, among other topics, to boost your confidence as a hunter. Uh, John goes through kind of his trials and tribulations, his system. Uh, of course, that does include scent control, and John's a big saddle hunter. But other than that, we get into things like uh, security cover, destination locations scrapes when to be in the woods and um, kind of things that john's done uh, over the years that have helped him become successful uh, john is a, always a, a great guy to talk to and uh, we do appreciate having him on the show um, also uh, i'm also working with john uh, through a new venture called the vitals live and uh, the vitals live is basically uh, live online seminars uh, with some of the biggest names in our hunting realm. Um, and those are given multiple times a week. So, so far there's been two sessions with John Eberhart and uh, we're doing another live listener uh, viewer Q&A session coming up this Sunday, June 28th. And yesterday, Tuesday, the 23rd was the first session that was done with Dan Infault. Uh, and Dan Infault uh, is doing a map uh, overlay scouting. Um, he's also doing a couple other topic Q&A discussions this week. So um, if you're listening to this the day that it comes out, you can go to thevitalslive.com and check out the schedule and when you can catch Dan on some of those other ones. Uh, then into July, there's going to be sessions with uh, Garrett Prawl, who's the DIY sportsman. He's been on the podcast uh, before, as well as more appearances by D John, uh, Johnny Eberhardt, Dan Infault, and uh, some other guys as well. Um, as a thank you to our Patreons, we're going to be giving away a, uh, a one-month session um, subscription to that. Um, 
as a, as a thank you to those who support our show uh, through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, Patreon's a crowdfunding uh, for creators. So if you like the show and you want to help out uh, with overhead costs, hosting fees, uh, hunting licenses, you know, all the stuff that goes along with, uh, you know, having uh, a podcast, uh, Patreon allows you to do that. And you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. As a thank you, besides the Vitals Live giveaway, um, we also do quarterly giveaways. And what we're doing this quarter, this quarter is going to come to an end. Basically, as soon as this podcast is done, um, I'm going to wait a couple of days and pull a winner. Uh, the The podcast, uh, this quarter ends, obviously, you know, July 1st starts the new quarter. But I wanted to see if I could get this gift out to the lucky Patreon before that, uh, before the the weekend of the the fourth, because we're giving away a Traeger 575 Pro pellet grill. Um, that one's got Wi-Fi. Um, I don't have that on mine. It's something that would be really nice to have. And uh, you know, that's about an $800 grill. Um, and right now we've got 50 Patreons. So if you sign up before, basically June 29th, I think I'm going to pull the winner. Um, you'll have a chance to be in there. So it's basically a one in 51, one in 52 chance, whatever, really good odds, uh, to win some great prizes. Um, and so we're giving away that we're giving away a Tacticam solo package, uh, to another Patreon. Uh, base map is giving away a pro membership along with a swag pack with a hat and shirt and things like that. And again, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash bowhunter chronicles podcast. And, if you're not into Patreon or, you know, anything like that, just please, all that we can ask is that you tell somebody else about the show. That's the best way for us to get in in, in front of new people and, and to be able to grow the podcast that way. And if you really like what we're doing or you really hate what we're doing, either way, you can go on whatever platform you're listening on and leave us a review. Good, bad, and indifferent. Hit that one star, five star, whatever you think. Type something out. Leave a review. And those help us as well. And we do really appreciate that. But I know you guys are going to love this episode. John's always a great guest. And I've been talking to him a lot. So it's a pretty comfortable setting for um, John and I uh, to have a conversation. So you guys are going to like this. Enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, Adam and John back with another episode of the Bow Hunter Chronicles podcast. And uh, on the line, we got a special guest here tonight, someone we've uh, had on the podcast briefly. We've been on another podcast with them as well, uh, but we haven't got to, uh, you know, sit down and pick his brain. Um, John Eberhart, the affectionately known godfather of saddle hunting, uh, Michigan public land. Big buck killer, extraordinaire, bow hunting pressured whitetails, author. Um, what else you got, John? Stop me anytime. Well, the last <laughs> two years I've sucked. So other than that, <laughs> I've written three three books: precision bow hunting, bow hunting whitetails, Eberhart Way, uh, uh, bow hunting pressured whitetails. Uh, I've produced a, an instructional three V three DVD series on bow hunting pressured whitetails. And I've, I've done a lot of writing and seminars and stuff, but other than that, that's pretty well covers it. All right. And, and the, those last two years of sucking means that he is actually human folks. So it's, it's not all well, roses, even for, 
even for the big guys? I haven't seen, I haven't even visually seen a buck in Michigan I would shoot during the last two seasons. So, and it's kind of weird because typically when I go out of state, I'll see five to 15 Pope and Young bucks in a seven day time period. So it's kind of, it's kind of different, kind of weird. So in a way, is it, um, is it humbling or is something like, do you think something's changed uh, dramatically or, or, I mean, what well, do you think the difference is? Well, didn't you have shoulder surgery also? No, I, I, no, I absolutely have zero excuses. I just think, uh, I think the properties that I've hunted have not had any bucks that mm-hmm. made books. So I haven't had anything to shoot at. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't use cameras in Michigan, but the other hunters, I don't hunt any, any property by myself. There's always two, three other hunters, even if it's 20 acres, because it's just free permission property. So they let other people hunt and other people have cameras and I talk to them and I, even the other hunters that had cameras out, never had a shooter buck what I would shoot on any of their cameras. So you can't kill them if they don't exist. And you know how you guys know better than anybody what Michigan's like. I mean, there's years where there's just no big bucks on the property that you have access to hunt, whether it be public or private. Well, that's for sure. And, 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 you know, that's what I was going to say is, you know, leading into this, you know, that's got to be one of the, one of your number one rules I'd imagine is you can't kill a big deer if they're not there. So uh, how are you going about, you know, without using cameras here in Michigan, um, how are you locating, you know, these, these book class animals? I, I never go out and look for the animals ever, never, ever have. I've always, during my postseason scouting, I, I look for sign, I look for scrape areas, I look for uh, congestion points of terrain features, uh, pinch points of transition security cover. I look for destination locations and sign, uh, you know, apple trees, oak trees, uh, primary scrapes around crop field edges. I'll prep something for that, and then I'll hunt it. If it's in standing corn, as soon as the corn's cut, I won't hunt it because there's no security cover button up to it. So I'm hunting the places where I know if there is a big buck on the property, uh, I will see them or else one of the, you know, one of the other guys will have them on camera. But if there is anything big on the property, I I should have an opportunity at it because I'm at the primary destination locations where mature bucks are going to go during pre-rut and during the rut, you know, when they're looking for those ester stoves. And so, uh, how does your strategy in that regard differ from, say, every other Tom, Dick, and Harry that's in the woods? Because, I mean, if you had a spot that is that lone apple tree or are those oaks, how are you avoiding other hunters or um, how are you, you know, not getting messed up um, by other hunters in those scenarios on on public land or on these properties where there are other hunters, if that's the spot to be? Well, on public land, it's pretty simple. I, I have a standing rule whenever I scout public land, and if I can walk to a location, um, I don't care how much sign is there, I won't set it up. So I will only hunt public land locations where I have to physically cross a river with waders or hip boots or a canoe or a boat or crawl on my hands and knees through brush to get back to some openings or something. So I 
try to separate myself just by my work ethic and willing to do things that most guys won't on public land. Um, you know, and, and when you put that into perspective, you have to pretend like everybody's trying to kill you. Everybody on the public land is trying to kill you. Where's the only places you're going to go where you might get up and move during daylight hours? Because all the sign in the world is worthless if it's in a spot that's easy to access. I mean, there may be a big buck visiting it if there's a big buck in the area, but yeah, it's 99.9% .9 odds if he's visiting it, it's after dark, during the security of darkness. So, so by only looking at those remote areas, it immediately it immediately eliminates probably 80% of the properties that you don't even have to look at, you know, because unless you cross something or go back into some area where other hunters typically are not willing to make that work effort to go to, um, you know, I just don't go to those places that are easy, easy access. So I, I immediately eliminate a minimum of 80% of the property by not going to and setting up or scouting areas where other hunters can walk to standing up in an upright position. I used to get the biggest charge out of that commercial with Michael Waddell, you know, walking down a two track with his uh, buddy and he had a big climber on his back and, you know, they're going up and they set up in this open, open timber with no understory, no security cover underneath the canopy. And, you know, they shoot a big buck. And I mean, that is so non-realistic, you know, pressure, you know, a PA or New York or Virginia or up in the Northeast or Michigan, that, that, that's fantasy land. I mean, you, if you're hunting in a pressured area, you have to have a specific, you have to have a strategy and the seasonal and daily timing. The guy, even on private properties, I hunt the other guys, scent control. I have a scent control second to nobody in the country. I never pay attention to wind and on one property that I it's private I hunt the property owner I'm the only one that he will allow to go hunt in the swamp because when you're hunting in a swamp usually it's going to be during pre-rut or rut when does are actually up and moving around in the swamp looking for looking for does uh, he just doesn't trust anybody else not to spook deer off the property because when you're hunting in a bedding area, you are going to have deer downwind of because you're not hunting a specific destination spot. You're going to have deer moving all around you at any point in time during the day. So you have to have pretty much perfect scent control. So deer going downwind of you don't wind you. So I'm the only one he allows in the in the bedding area. Um, and when I'm hunting other other places, I just hunt differently. I hunt with a seasonal and daily timing being correct. Um, you know, other hunters, they just hunt. I have different entry and exit routes than they do. I make sure I don't spook any, I, I'm not going to say I don't spook anything. There's no way you could hunt all season without spooking deer with your entries and exits. But the, the amount of deer I spook is very minimal compared to how most people enter and exit their hunting locations. And, and that's kind of what I was going to go over is basically, I have seven strategies, you know, for, for, uh, taking what a lot of people term as nocturnal bucks and and Michigan's a prime example probably as good as any state maybe other than PA um, you know most of our three and a half year old and older bucks are pretty much nocturnal until rut phases I don't believe any buck is totally nocturnal all the time excuse me but in in Michigan they're pretty much nocturnal 
until the uh, free rut when their testosterone levels kick up and they start, you know, <laughs> their lower body units take over their brain and they start looking for, you know, estrostone. And uh, they make mistakes. And uh, so I, I'm, I pretty much strategically, that's when I spend the most of my time hunting is during the rut days. It's just like everybody else. But, but I'm a big security cover guy. Um, security cover, security cover, security cover. I can't overstress that. Every, I never ever hunt any location that doesn't have in, in Michigan. When I go out of state, I, I despec my hunting skills because I don't need to be as detail oriented. But in Michigan, I, I never hunt a location. I won't even set up a location that doesn't have some form of perimeter security cover around the actual, what I term the kill zone, the destination location. And it has to have some form of transition security cover from a known bedding area. In other words, a, a big buck is not going to, you know, just get up from a bedding area and move through 200 yards of open timber with no understory, just bare ground underneath it to access a feeding location or a scrape area. He's just not going to make that vulnerable movement. Um, it's, it's just too dangerous. Uh, of the 31 bucks I have in the Michigan record book, 28 of them had been previously wounded. I found either scars on their body where broadheads had passed through them or, you know, bullets. I found slugs in them and buckshot. I found broadheads in quite a few deer. 28 of the 31 had wounds and one of them carried four projectiles. Of the 19 Pope and Young Bucks I've shot out of state, not one of them carried any wound from a previous, from a previous hunter encounter. And the average age group of the deer I've shot out of state is probably considerably older. Most of the, most of the bucks I have in the book in Michigan are three and a half, four and a half years old. I've shot a lot of bucks out of state that were five and a half and six and a half years old. So. They're older out there, yet none of them have ever, had ever been scathed by, you know, another hunter. So, you know, there's less hunting pressure. They tolerate a lot more human intrusions. They tolerate a little bit more human odor. They, they just tolerate stuff. What are, what are you um, determining as security cover? I'm, I'm, cons I'm considering security cover is tall weeds, marsh grass, in a swamp with red brush, uh, cattail marshes. Um, autumn olive, you know, hills of, soft, of autumn olive or areas where there's just a lot of autumn olive. Um, any, any kind of tall vegetation where deer can actually move along or through and basically have a quick exit route. They always have, a, they have to have a mature buck in Michigan unless he's with a hot doe. I won't hunt a spot unless that deer has a quick exit exit route because that's going to make it more conducive for them to go through that area during daylight hours. So it's not going to be like a huckleberry bog, you know, where you got to walk over the top of the stuff. Uh, just on some semblance of security cover that once they hop into it or if they're moving through it, they're very difficult to see. Or, you know, as soon as they jump in the tall weeds, they're gone. I, I remember killing a monster buck in uh, Illinois next to a weed field in December, two days after their gust season ended on public land, and the weeds were 10 feet tall. 
I mean, I if I was walking through that weed field and I bumped a deer three feet in front of me, I would have not be able to tell what it was. They were that dense. And uh, uh, the big buck I shot was skirting the edge of it. He came to a locust tree I was hunting in, um, you know, and he was skirting the edge of those tall weeds. So he, within one bound, he's gone. Where if there was any danger, he would have, you know, he would literally be gone as opposed to having to run through 50 or 100 yards of open open area, open ground, or open timber where he's very vulnerable. You know, they don't know you got a bow. They don't know what kind of weapon you got. They've just typically deer have been shot at before, and, and the older bucks just like us, you know. We tend to be daytime movers. You know, humans are tend to be daytime movers unless you have jobs after dark. So, you know, we move around in the daytime pretty pretty freely, just like deer move around in the nighttime pretty freely, because they're pretty much nighttime movers. But if you take a human and you, uh, most humans at midnight would feel pretty comfortable walking through a small rural town in any state, really, you know, out in, out in no man's land, it, walking through it at midnight, yet most humans would not feel safe walking through inner, inner city, uh, Chicago or Detroit in a crime-laden area at midnight, you know, and deer the same way, you know, as you age, you get smarter and deer the same way. So for them to move during the daylight, which is like us moving at night, um, you know, they, they have to have some semblance of security cover. They have to feel secure. And they're, you know, on public land, they're, if they moved out through open areas during the daylight on public land, they wouldn't exist. I mean, all of them get killed during gun season. So, you know, obviously they make mistakes, and that's why they do get killed when they're three or four years old once in a while, when deer do get that old. But but uh, very few live to that age. And once they do, they've got a pretty good chance of getting through the season without getting shot because they're just really, really smart. So you mentioned <clears throat> you do all your scouting after season or late season. How I mean, how does that work out? I do 100, well, I'm not going to say 100. I do 95%, that's the safe number, of all of my scouting and location preparation during usually February. I'm going to say March and April because my job, I'm working 100 hours a week in February and January. That's the busiest time of my year. I start I start running into some slow times in early March and April, so I, I have some time to do some stuff. But all of my scouting and location preparation and cleaning up my old locations that I've hunted for years or whatever is done typically by the end of April, maybe into May a little bit. Okay. So, so I guess, I guess security cover, you know, I, I have seven strategies and I'm, I'm going to kind of go through them if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. The first one is the security cover. You know, I, I won't hunt any place, any location unless there's adequate security cover around the kill area and adequate transition security cover or exit security cover, you know, the transition cover to a bedding area that has to have excellent security cover where they can just bound off and be gone and, and not have to worry about getting killed. So security cover is a big, big deal. Um, uh, probably the second thing is natural destination locations. I write a lot about that. And when I say natural destination locations, I'm not talking food plots. I've never hunted over a food plot in my life. Of the 50 bucks I've shot that make books, They've all been killed on public land and knock on doors for free permission property. So obviously I have no access to plant food plots or hunt over food plots. So I'm looking at 
you know, in Michigan, there's a lot of places where you'll find old apple trees, even on public land. I scouted a public land about a month ago, which we videoed for the YouTube video channel I have coming up here probably next week it's going to come out. Um, and I found a phenomenal spot butting up to a cattail marsh and a monstrosity area of autumn olive. And there was two apple trees. And there was a black cherry tree within 15 yards of it. Uh, and I'm going to probably hunt that tree this fall. If those, you know, I'll, I'll do a preseason speed tour to see if, they're having, if they have apples. Uh, so apple trees, um, white oaks would be next as far as mass and fruit, then red oaks, uh, locust trees, which we don't have a lot of those in Michigan. If I go out of state, I focus on locust trees in December because the deer love to eat the locust trees when there's snow on the ground because it's an easy, easy food source. Um, and then obviously scrape areas. Well over half of the bucks I've shot over the last 30 years were at scrape areas. And scrape areas kind of go in conjunction with mast and fruit trees. Um, typically, if an apple tree is dropping, apples uh, or white oaks are dropping, uh, and there's not a lot of them in the area, obviously, if you've got a huge area of timber and it's scattered with white oaks and red oaks, you know, there's not going to be much for scrape areas because there's no specific destination spot where the does converge in a small area. They can just basically browse throughout the whole timber, so there's no defined destination spot. But if you just got a couple couple oak trees and everything else is, you know, cherries and maples and, and beech trees and uh, popples and whatever, you know, that's going to be a natural destination spot. And typically, because those are where does feed, and all buck activity during the rut phases revolves around doe activity, that's where the mature bucks and even the subordinate bucks, once the scrapes are made, will come in and check. So natural destinations for food, because the food attracts the does, and these are isolated spots, so they're kind of small, so deer have to come to them at the destination location. Uh, but those little tiny small spots where does feed is where the bucks are going to put their, their scrapes and they're going to rub around the area um, because it's because it's a doe spot. And, and those, you know, seasonal daily timing goes with that. As soon as you prep something like that, you obviously have to come back. I come back during a speed tour just prior to season, and I'll see if the mass trees or the fruit trees or whatever or the scrape areas are active and if the trees are actually have master fruit and if they're dropping. And then because I'm only prepping location with security cover around it, uh, and because I'm checking these spots after September 20th, which means most of the mature bucks, if there are any, have been rubbed out for at least two weeks. They are typically all rubbed out by September 5th. Um, you know, there's going to be buck sign in the area. There's going to be rubs on the brush, and there's going to be scrapes under the apple trees. Um, so, so basically, that's destination locations. You know, destination feeding locations for those which become uh, destination locations for bucks and where they put their scrapes. And obviously it's the destination location for a buck, possibly in the first day or two or three of season, when he may still potentially be in a summer daytime routine. Um, you know, if he, but typically if it's on public land, just to, because there's so many hunters that hunt public land, just their preseason 
scouting and preseason location preparation has turned most three and a half year old and older bucks nocturnal before season ever even opens. So try to kill a three and a half year old or older buck in a state like Michigan or PA or New York, you know, on the first two, two or three days of season is pretty close to zero. It's really difficult because they're just nocturnal before that. So first is security cover. Second is I focus uh, my attention on nat natural destination location. And uh, something else on the nat natural destination location, you know, a lot of people will set up apple trees or white oaks. And if they're out in the timber, they hunt them whenever. They'll hunt them in the mornings and they'll hunt them in the evenings. And that's a big no-no. You're going to, when you hunt an apple tree in the morning, you're going to spook deer at it with your entry because there's almost always going to be deer feeding at it because it's a primary feeding location. Even if it's in ag areas, apples, they prefer apples over a lot of other stuff. And, you know, they don't sit out and eat hay all night or corn all night. They, they go around and they'll feed here for an hour and feed there for half an hour. And, you know, there's probably going to be some does there. So, you know, those are strictly evening locations, whether it's during early season or whether it's during the rush. So, you know, timing on those trees is very critical, seasonal and daily timing. Uh, if you are going out to hunt in the morning, this is my number three strategy. And I've had a lot of emails on this over the last 20 years since my first book came out because I, I wrote about this quite a bit, is being on stand super early. When I say super early, I'm always on stand and settled in and quiet an hour and a half before daylight on morning hunts. I'm, I'm usually getting out of my vehicle two hours before daylight. You know, I've got spots I hunt in southern Michigan, two and a half hours from my house, and I get up at one o'clock to drive down there and go hunting. Uh, because mature bucks tend to about half an hour to 40 minutes to an hour before daylight, they will start to transition out of ag if it's in an ag area, or they'll, if it's on a, on a ridge with uh, oak trees, they'll start to transition out of that before daylight and get back down into some heavier security cover because obviously the ag and the open timber where there may be oaks, um, it's just too open and vulnerable for them to be in the daylight. So they'll start transitioning. So I want to make sure I'm in my location well before they start to make that transition and I'm quiet. Otherwise, with a typical 15-minute or half-hour before daylight entry, I'm going to spook the very deer I'm trying to hunt with my entry, and I'm not going to know it because they're going to hear me coming from a distance, and they're just going to scoot away. I'll never know I spooked them. And I've had many hunters tell me that one tip changed their success. I had a guy from Ohio 15 years ago. He said, man, that was the big thing I was missing. I was going into the stand of oaks like a half an hour before daylight, and I could hear some rustling ahead of me. Um, and I'd get in my tree, and I, I'd see some does and fawns and maybe a sport and a buck, but I'd never see a big buck. And then I read that book, and then he said, I, I picked up on that, and I started getting in my tree, like you said, an hour and a half before daylight and quiet. And he said, that very first year he read that book, and I'm not trying to promote the book by any means. I'm just mentioning it. He, he shot a monster buck, and he said it was so cool because he could hear the deer coming in to these oaks, you know, half hour before daylight they're transitioning through these oaks back towards the bedding area and because 
once they're there and they couldn't hear anything coming in, they felt comfortable eating at the oak, at the oaks and eating the acorns, you know, because it butted up to the bedding area. So he was right there at the transition route going back to bed, and by him getting there early enough before they got there, he killed them. I never heard from the guy again, but <laughs> he sent me a picture of that picture of that year. So, you know, getting on stand super early is a big, big deal. And just so um, real real quick, you know, you, you touched on a little bit of the entry, exit, and timing of hunting um, food sources, apple trees, and stuff like that. Are you doing the same thing? Uh, I mean, when you're talking early morning, uh, are you talking like – Scrapes, you know, when you're finding that primary scrape area, are you doing morning sits, evening sits? Um, oh, I'll do both. I'll do both on a scrape area, but I, I am 100% of the time, if I'm hunting in the morning, I'm on stand an hour and a half before daylight. Right. I just didn't know if you had a, a you know, over the the history of your, um, you know, harvest and all that stuff, if there was a more more success in the morning or evening or, or you've seen different trends in, in that. No, you know, that's a good question because some areas are very conducive for evening hunts and some areas are very conducive for morning hunts and some areas I've hunted have been conducive for both. Um, it's kind of interesting because I've shot three bucks in Michigan that made book in the first two days of bow season and all three of them were in the morning and all three of them I rattled in. All three of them, I two of them I heard, I was in a bedding area. I actually, I physically heard bucks sparring and both of them were about well actually one of them was about probably a half hour after daylight so it was probably 7 40 and as soon as they stopped uh, sparring they weren't fighting they were just sparring and i had no clue what they were i could just hear two bucks sparring i rattled and a big eight point came in and i shot him and that was that was in the 70s late 70s as early 80s i take that back and then um in 1999, I was um, in a transition zone between, I was right on the edge of a bedding area in Smokes, a uh, transition area going into a bedding area. And about 8 o'clock, I could see two legs walking under some trees about 100 yards, 80 to 100 yards away, two sets of legs. And I had no clue what they were. And I, I did a subtle sparring sequence. And uh, they turned and they started coming towards me and they got about 40 yards and I could see some glimpses of antlers now, so I know they're bucks. But they lost interest but after they moved that 40 or 60 yards. They lost interest, they started eating some acorns and then they turned and started going back towards the bedding area, which is just another like 50, 60 yards away on to the east. So they were too close for me to use a rattle sequence again because a rattle sequence uh re, you know requires taking you know 10 or 15 seconds and obviously they would key me in being 25 feet up in the tree if i'm doing it for 15 seconds so i took out i carry an inhale and an exhale grunt call and i i took out the inhale grunt call and turned around and it was a typical morning it was dead quiet and i just did a really soft in, uh, inhale grunt and uh they both came right over. One was an eight and one was a 10, and I shot 10 points. And then, uh, let's see, the other one was in a bedding area where I heard, again, that was at 8 o'clock, and I heard two bucks sparring. Couldn't see him. They were 150 yards away. And as soon as they stopped, I did a rattle sequence, and a 10-point came over. 
probably the bigger of the two came over and I got a 14 yard shot at him. So, so I've had better luck early season in the mornings for some odd reason, at least, uh, tactics wise. But I think during the rut phases, I've probably had my highest success rate. Not probably I have because I've got the stats during midday. So from 11 o'clock until three, um, I've, I've shot 21 bucks that make book in Michigan between November 1st and November 14th. And of those 21 bucks, seven of them were shot between 11 o'clock a.m. and 3 p.m., middle of the day. And so that's exactly 33% were shot during midday, while less than 8% of my time spent on stand during those 14 days was between 11 and 3. So most of, you know, a good percentage of my hunts, I just hunted morning or evening. There wasn't a lot of all-day sits where I hunted through midday. But yet I still killed 33% of the bucks during midday, while less than 8% of my time spent on stand would be between 11 and 3 o'clock. And not, you know, you know, it's it's hard to, at least for me hearing this, to take into account you know, other hunters, um, you know, recollections or seeing their pictures or anything like that. But, you know, that's, that's like, kind of like the hardest thing for me to digest through all of this is like, you know, if you're getting up at one in the morning, going to do an all day sit on an area where you're just saying, well, I'm pretty sure that there's going to be a good, but if there's one in there, he's going to be here. You know, that's a lot of, um, confidence in your spots. And like I said, you, you may have, you know, seen a bunch of deer throughout the, the year or whatever that that's put you into that. But I mean, that, that's the one thing that I'm, I'm thinking about here. Like that's some real confidence, stick to I don't, I don't know, you know, well, I've had a lot of confidence. I had a lot of confidence in every spot I hunted the last two seasons in Michigan. I didn't kill anything. Yeah. <laughs> I always go to a spot with a lot of confidence. I'm a pretty confident guy. I'm a pretty upbeat guy, and uh, so I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty confident in my spots. I'm very I'm very specific on having a plan for every hunt. You know, I've, uh, I'll probably have 40 trees prepped. I'll probably only during the course of the season I'll probably only hunt 12 of them, and I have a plan for all of them. Some of my spots are early season spots. Some are morning spots. Some are pre-rut spots. Some are evening spots. Some are midday spots. And when I like. When I used to go out of state by myself, I always take my kids with me now. But I used to go by myself all the time, and sleep deprivation was a major, major issue. And there were hunts where I would literally sleep in until 9 and 10 o'clock because I was just too tired. And I, I would always prep prep one or two. When I, when I scouted the first day or two in prep locations, I always prepped one or two midday locations. And a midday location would be like a, a good – a transition route with excellent security cover between two bedding areas where a buck would, you know, maybe go in and scent check this bedding area and then take the best available transition security cover route to the next bedding area to check that bedding area for does. So that would be a midday spot because I wouldn't have to worry about spooking deer with my entry because it's in the transition route. I'm not physically going into the bedding area to mess it up. Because when I hunt bedding areas, it's all day sets. 
because otherwise you'd spook deer with your exits in the when you get down in the morning, or you'd spook deer with your evening entries. So I always I always have, and I don't have a lot of them because I don't hunt a lot of full day hunts anymore. But I I always have one or two midday locations where I can sleep in until eight thirty or eight o'clock, and then you know get on stand by ten. And and I don't want to take you away from the. The principles we can get back to those here in, oh, that, yeah, in, that's fine. in just a second but um you know we've got a lot of hunters and and I, I don't know i think it's just because i was you know excited to get in and, and and get into the nuts and bolts of talking to you but we've got a lot of hunters that are east coast hunters that are pressured coast uh you know pressured state hunters and things like that and we've got a lot of new hunters that are you know, either trying to kill their first buck with a bow, trying to kill their first deer with the bow, or trying to take their, their hunting, you know, everybody's trying to get better and trying to improve. Um, but that confidence thing is one thing that's kind of, you know, after decades and, you know, shooting some deer and, you know, I, I say tongue in cheek that I'm the world's worst bow hunter, you know, because of all the things that, that go wrong, you know, um, and how do you, I guess, where would you point somebody um, to help them to start to build that confidence? Because we all have those sits where things just go terribly wrong. And, you know, you're saying that, you know, the last two years, there just hasn't been a deer that you've, that you wanted to kill or that that's been in the the class that you're, you know, striving to take. Uh, how do you, how would you impart like that confidence upon, you know, these, these hunters that are trying to, to work through it and it's like you know every time i go out there's somebody there you know it's, you know something's wrong or you know because there are a million excuses that you can come up with or you know reasons why uh it didn't go right but how i mean how do you how do you keep that positive mindset or what advice would you have for them there's a couple things there is when i go sit on any location um you know i try to sit in locations where i'm not going to see a lot of deer typically the locations i'm in I'm not going to see a lot of deer because I don't have a big visual. I, I never hunt field edges, crop, unless it's a standing cornfield. I never hunt on anything, beans, thick corn, hay. Uh. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. You know, anything short crops, I never hunt edges ever in Michigan because bucks just aren't going to come out into those that I want to kill during daylight hours. So, but when I, when I do go hunting, I, I don't always have expectations of seeing deer. I, I'm just aware that to kill the deer that I want to kill, I'm going to have a lot of empty sets. So, I never get down on myself. It's just, you know, you, you put in your time and you do the best you can and, and you hope for the best. But the thing you said about the public land hunters goes right back to what I said. 
if you are a public land hunter, I, I got a phenomenal example for you, Adam. We filmed a video for the, for the YouTube channel about a month and a half ago, and it was on public land down in the Gregory area. And I was shocked. I'd never been on this property before in my life. And there was, I don't know what the date is where you have to have your tree stands out of trees, and if you don't, anybody can take them and they're theirs. There is a date, a cutoff date. Um, but anyway, there was, it was a good, it was in March, late March or early April. And there was eight stands that we saw in a 200 yard area, 200 by 200 yard area in wide open timber with absolutely no security undercover. So, you know, if people are going to hunt, and I can't knock people for not knowing because people just don't know. You know, if you don't know, you just don't know. But you you need to learn if you're going to hunt heavily pressured property, you just have to learn to go back to the areas where there's some security cover. It was also very interesting. When we walked through that property, we found one rub in the timber on a small sapling. Both edges we went down, both edges of this woods, two, probably 200, 250 yards wide. One edge was a swamp and one edge was a cattail marsh with a river going, going through it. Both edges were lined with buck rub and there wasn't one stand along the edges next to the security guard. So people have to just, they just have to learn by mistakes like I did. I didn't have a mentor. Nobody in my family hunted. None of my relatives hunted. I learned totally 100% on my own, and you have to make mistakes that you have to learn, but you, you can't keep doing the same things and hunting the same way and expecting better results. You can't hunt public land where there's other people's stands in the same general vicinity and expect to kill big bucks, you know, unless you just feel like you're luckier than they are. You, you have to go places where other hunters are not willing to go. Now, if you're happy shooting does or a year and a half old buck, which you very well might be able to do in an open timber area like that because they're not, you know, they're just not as leery as a big buck, well, then that's fine. And that's, you know, I have nothing against somebody if they want to shoot a four-pointer or a six-pointer. That's great. That, if that makes them happy, I'm all for it. But um, they, they just need to not watch TV. Because the TV guys hunt stuff like that and kill big bucks all the time, but they're hunting in a zoo. They're literally hunting in a zoo-like like setting, and you can't compare what you do to what they do. Um, you know, the Drury's and the Kis Kiskies and the Lee and Tiffany, you know, they have 150-inch bucks walk by them, and they don't shoot them because they're not big enough. I mean, that's a zoo setting. Anybody could kill bucks in a stop place like that. And they're hunting open areas, so because they're hunting open areas and field edges, you know, hunters that watch their shows think that they can do that and have similar results. And that's just, it, that's not the reality of hunting. You know, it's, you know, it's like sports icon. Um, you look at Phil, Phil Mickelson, or you look at LeBron James or Tom Brady, uh, Tiger Woods, those guys all competed against other golfers, basketball players, Michael Phelps swimmers, you know, their whole life through middle school, through high school. And then they got a, you know, maybe they went to college and then they got drafted into the pros. But the one thing that, and then they out competed all the people in the pros, but the one thing that made him a 
sports icon is they competed against all their competition on the exact same fields, the same basketball course, the same swimming pool. So they were physically better. They deserve to be sports icon. TV guys don't compete against anybody. They have zero competition. That's just a flat fact. And they have many, many mature bucks on their property. So they have no competition. And for people to assume that they can hunt in that same manner and kill big bucks, it's not going to happen if you live in Michigan or PA or New York or in the Northeast. It isn't going to happen because that's just not reality. So you have to learn what you have access to, uh, lower your expectations for the area you're hunting, and learn to, if you, if you can take one thing away from this, just focus on being close to security cover. I'm not saying you have to be in the middle of a cattail marsh, but focus to the edges. Stay tight to the edges of security cover and transition security cover or in bedding areas and, you know, get away from where other hunter stands are and you'll have a lot better success. Um, and keep a positive attitude. You know, when I'm, when I'm hunting, if I see a deer, that's a great hunt. You know, I've, I've had my share. I've, I've done all that stuff that you're talking about. I went through all of those regiments where, you know, when I started hunting, if I shot a fawn in the sixties, that was a big deal with a bow. 2% of bow hunters killed a deer with a bow. Now it's 40%. Uh, so, and then I worked my way up to, you know, does and then I started shooting some, you know, subordinate bucks and then I worked my way up to only shooting two and a half and, you know, now I'm above that. So, um, you, you have to progress to, to get better. Um, I guess that's the best way to, you just can't come out of the box and be good unless you own a lot, a lot of property and have a lot of money and buy something and keep everybody off. Well, I, I think that that's great because again, you know, there's, there's so many people out there that you know, with social media and, and everything. Yeah, everybody's killed. Every, everybody kills a 140, you know. <clears throat> if you didn't kill a 140, well, you better not post a picture of your, the buck, you know, the first buck that you've ever killed because you're just going to get shit on by, you know, everybody and their brother because, you know, why would you kill that? Needed another year. Every buck out there needs another year, you know. and You know what, Adam? <laughs> that is That is so cool, and... I want to congratulate. I do this. I try to do this on every podcast I ever do. I want to congratulate the hunting public because those guys have made it cool to kill deer on public land. They've made it where if you kill, if you're in Pennsylvania and you kill a two and a half year old eight point with a 14 inch spread that scores 85 inches, you got a stud buck, man. And you should be proud of it. You know, I, I used to hate working in stores and doing seminars where there's got to have guys standing around the, after a seminar and they'd pull out their cameras and one guy'd show me a 130 and other guys, well, that ain't nothing. I hear the 140. I, I hate that. I absolutely hate that. If somebody shoots, if somebody's a new hunter and they kill a six point, hey, that's phenomenal. I'm not a huge APR guy at all. Uh, I mean, I get a lot of flack for that, but. You know, people pay for hunting license and they pay taxes to hunt public land just like everybody else does. And, you know, we don't like the government putting regulations on us for the most part. Most people don't. And so why should we put our demands and our regulations on all the other hunters that buy licenses? You know, 
yeah, I live up north. You guys live in a deer hunting area. We see deer all the time. We have a lot of opportunities. Some guy yo-yo from blue-collar guy from Detroit or Grand Rapids that works in a factory that gets one week off a year to go hunting, and he goes hunting, and he gets an opportunity to kill a five-pointer. Hey, more power to it. That may win the buck pool at his little factory. So, you know, I, I'm not a big guy on this APR. You know, I don't care one way or the other, really, but, you know, I don't like anything being force-fed down everybody's throat, just like I don't like the government force-feeding stuff down my throat that I don't like. <laughs> so uh, I may get some flack for that, but that's okay. Oh, not, not here. We're, we're the most vocal on, I mean, I, I think John and I both would be one buck. That would be ideal for, for our state. And it allows everybody to kill whatever you want. You know, I 100% agree. I think us being a two buck state is, it's obviously one of the reasons we are such a poor, uh, state for killing big bucks we are out of 38 states with whitetails we're like number 32 as far as PNY entries per licensed hunters we are absolutely horrendously terrible and if we went to a one buck indiana for instance indiana is a phenomenal example indiana used to be a two buck state and they were number 15 statistically because indiana is in a lot you know indiana is right between ohio and in, or illinois so it's got phenomenal ground great soil Great crops, great antler growth per age group of deer, and they were number fifteen statistically in PNY entries per licensed hunters. And nine years, I think it was nine about nine years ago, they went to one buck, and now they're number five. So yeah. just by going from two to one bucks, they went up ten spots in the uh, statistical data for taking PNYs per licensed hunters. Yeah, it makes sense. But, I mean, but it'll never happen. Michigan wants the money, man. Michigan too worried about you know the license money you know if i had my way i'd i'd have them raise the license double the cost of a tag and just limit it to one you know that way they're not changing their their income it's going to be the same and shoot if you have to pay forty dollars for a deer license to hunt three months are you kidding what a deal right john it's like you've been listening to our podcast because (laughs) (laughs) we echo those sentiments exactly i think oh my god 40 bucks is nothing right (laughs) I think the uh, good. I I I don't. I've never listened to anybody's podcast. I've done a lot of them, but I have never listened to a podcast. <laughs> I think the insurance agents would be uh, pissed off though if we got limited to a one tag. They'd be like, "Come on, we already have enough deer car accidents." <laughs> but well, they can always <laughs> give out more doe tags. Right. I'm just being the <laughs> the uh, devil's advocate on that one. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we we definitely feel the same way. One buck tag, you know, we used, we used to hunt Ohio. They're a one buck tag, you know, and so a guy wants to go out and kill a five point and he's happy with it, that's great. That's, I mean, it's a trophy to him. Perfect. Anyone can go out and get the, you know, meat for their freezer, whatever, and everyone would be happy. I mean, then there'll be some bigger bucks out, you know. Absolutely. And it makes you think, you know, if you, if you get one tag, you know, with two tags, you know, somebody's have to shoot, you know, I'll get a little buck for the freezer instead of just shooting a dang doe. Right. Uh, I'll get a little buck because I got buck tag, and then I'll use my second tag. I've got to shoot something with four on the side. And then, you know, then they'll wait, and they may not shoot anything with four on the side. But if they just had one tag, they're going to be really cautious, and then there's a good chance they might not kill a buck because by the time they say, okay, now I'm just going to shoot any buck, 
Right. You know, then they might not get an opportunity. <laughs> so. Man, how many times yeah. have, have you heard where a guy, you know, you got both tags in your pocket and then a, a buck comes in with four on one side and they shoot it and tag it with their restricted tag. And then they still have, a, you know, an unlimited tag left. And then it can still go and shoot a spike horn or a three point. And, you know, now you're taking out it in a backwards order, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Happens, happens all the time. Right. Yeah. They're, they're just shooting bucks and they shoot an eight someone four on the side of the first tag. That's what they're going to use for their tag. Yep. Without, without a doubt. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, like I said, I didn't want to get you off, off track there, but uh, I mean, as a. Well, we went through four, so the last one was the daily and seasonal timing, you know, for each location. Every location should have a daily and seasonal timing that it's best that it would best perform for. So that was number four. Uh, five is properly preparing locations. I, I I really struggle to comprehend when I see other people's hunting locations how bad they are. <laughs> I mean, I, oh, we do uh, the I same thing. <laughs> oh my God. The shooting lanes aren't very good, or they're not high enough, or they're totally exposed on the side of a tree, and it's just, how, I'm like, how do you even, how could you even get a shot out of that tree? <laughs> it just blows blows my mind. They don't have the proper shooting lanes, and uh, they don't get high enough, you know, and, and I think that has a lot to do with most people prep their locations during preseason, when there's foliage on everything. You know, and if you're prepping, that's one cool thing about postseason scouting and location preparation, because I focus most of my locations around the rut phases when the foliage is down. So obviously during postseason, when I'm looking at my locations and I'm looking at the trees I want to set up in, I'm looking at them exactly the way they're going to look during the time I'm going to hunt them. So, you know, I'm going to set up a little bit higher because I, I need to get up out of their peripheral vision, whereas when I'm prepping locations during preseason and everything's got foliage, I may set something up. 18 or 20 feet high. And then when I go back to hunt it in November, you know, I stick out like a sore thumb because now all the foliage is gone. That's another cool thing about postseason scouting also is when you go out in preseason scout and you set up what you think is a rut phase location, everything looks dense. The security cover looks a lot denser because it's got foliage on it. When you're out there during postseason and you're looking at an area, you're looking at it, how it's going to look when you hunt it during the rut phases as far as foliage on the brush on the ground. Lots of times in the old years, in the 70s, I'd prep a location that looked like, wow, this has got all kinds of brush and stuff. And then I'd get back there in uh, first of November, and it was just wide open. You know, all the leaves are off what little brush was there that looked thick, and now there's nothing there for security cover. Right. They're like, so, we're not walking through that anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Without a doubt, yeah. So uh, properly preparing a location is a big deal. And I always tell people, if, you know, get up a little bit higher. If it's going to be a rut phase location, get up there 25 feet to your feet so, you know, you're out of their peripheral vision because, you know, you you got to let, you know, Michigan, we've got such a huge amount of does and subordinate bucks to every mature buck. So you're always going to have deer go by that you don't want them to, you don't want to get picked before the buck you, you know, before potentially the buck you would shoot come. Most of the big bucks I've shot in the evenings have been, you know, in the last half hour. And I've always, you know, where you've always had other deer go by prior to that. So, you know, not getting picked is a big deal. Uh, the last two things are actually, 
items. They're commercial items that you can purchase. So the first five things were actually hunting situations that I that I strategize on. But the last two are are commercial items, and the first one is a saddle. I've hunted out of a saddle since 1981, and I can't even begin to help to tell people how big of a difference that is. There is no question. At least half of the bucks I've shot over the last 40 years, I would not have shot if I were hunting out of anything other than a saddle. That is just a flat-out, straight-up, true statement. Um, being able to shoot 360, being able to carry the carry my tree stand in my backpack, you know, it rolls up the side a little bit bigger than a softball. I can shoot 360. Nobody's going to steal it. It doesn't make any noise. I can hunt every tree I ever prepped for the rest of my life out with this one little saddle that I'm carrying. Um, I'm not carrying anything cumbersome on my back. You know, when you're freelance hunting, my biggest buck I ever shot was 180 inch, and it was a freelance hunt. I just went in cold turkey, found a primary scrape area, never been back there before, and shot a 180 inch buck. And when you're freelancing, Typically, because I'm a security cover-oriented guy, and you're carrying a backpack frame on your back, plus your bow, plus your pack, uh, it's hard to beat through the brush, plus your sticks if you're carrying sticks. I'm a three-step guy, but most guys carry sticks. It's just hard to buck brush and get back into the stuff. That's why I also laughed at that Michael Waddell thing, carrying his, you know, climber on his back through a, on a two-track. That just doesn't happen in the real world. So uh, saddle is saddle is a big deal. I can hunt leaning trees. I can hunt big diameter trees. I can hunt tiny diameter trees. Um, it's it's its own safety climbing harness with a tree stand. If you're going back and you're freelancing, you have to have a safety climbing harness also, aside from your tree stand, to prep the tree. Something you know, some form of the safety belt. And with a saddle, it's not only a hunt. It's not only your hunting harness. It's also a safety harness so you can climb and put stuff in with both hands free. So there's just a ton, a ton of advantages that the saddle has. You can use the, one of the major, major advantages of the saddle is you can use the tree as a buffer. You can hide behind the tree. When I set up locations at a destination location, let's say it's at a white oak tree or a red oak tree or at a scrape area where I know the deer are going to come to a very specific location, typically I'm only going to prep one shooting lane to that spot because that's where they're going to end up coming to. So when I prep the tree, I prep the tree. So I'm physically 180 degrees on the back side of the tree from where the deer are going to be at the destination location. Because typically at a master of fruit tree, you're going to have does and fawns and subordinate bucks come in and feed first. Bucks, the big bucks are always the last ones to come just before dark. So you're going to have other deer there, and they're not there for 30 seconds. It's not a transition zone. It's a destination spot where they're going to be there for 10 or 15 minutes eating apples and looking around and listening. And You know, if you're sticking out on the side of the tree like you would with a tree stand, if it's a big diameter tree where you can't shoot to the other side of the tree if you're on one side, they're going to get, you're going to likely get in picks pretty high. But when you're in a saddle and you're on the totally 180 degrees on the opposite side of the tree and you're just peeking around the corner of the tree um you know when they leave if a big buck comes in you know just peek around the tree and when your shot opportunity comes where he's distracted looking someplace else or he's got his head down you just slightly lean to the side and take the shot and if deer are transitioning by in 
you're in a transition area or in a bedding area. If you see deer coming by, you can swing around the tree. You move around the tree 360 degrees. Always keep the tree between you and the deer so you don't get picked, even if it's a non-targeted deer, deer you don't want to shoot. So hunting out of a saddle is a big advantage. And then probably lastly, not probably, the last thing was I never pay attention to wind because I use activated carbon scent lock clothing. I started using that. Uh, 1997, and by, took me about three years to get to, to learn how to take care of it and use it properly and store it properly. But uh, for the last 20 years, me, my kids, and lots and lots of my friends, uh, we pay zero attention when dressing, and we never get to do it. And I paid attention, I hunted the wind 100% for the first 35 years I hunted. So I know the difference between getting winded and not getting winded. And there, back when I did hunt the wind, there were areas that I wouldn't even set up locations anymore because if I did, even if there was a prevailing wind, the currents and thermals and swirling winds from hitting leaves on trees, uh, you know, in corners, you'd always get busted because wind, if, if there's any foliage on the trees and you're in a corner of something of an opening, wind will hit those trees and a small portion of that wind will turn just like a just like a river bend just like a river bend it, you'll where there's always swirling up a little swirling pool wind will hit those trees they'll go down the tree line they'll hit the corner and then that wind will just start swirling in a circle and you'll get picked sides of ridges saddles where you got you know wind currents thermals coming down in the morning or up they're going up in the morning and down in the evening and when they hit the bottom, they kind of go up, and then they make a swirl. So there was a lot of my best locations I couldn't hunt because the wind was wrong on the days I wanted on it, and there was a lot of locations I just quit setting up because I couldn't hunt them without getting busted. So being able to hunt without paying, just imagine, I don't know if you guys do or not, but just imagine not having to think about the wind, not having to say, okay, which way is the wind going, where can I hunt tonight? And, you know, during the rut phases, you don't have that many days off work to hunt. So every opportunity means something. And if you can hunt the best location for that time of season without having to worry about which way the wind's blowing, that's a big, big deal. Yeah. Like, that's I know all this, I know. I know this could be like a whole <laughs> other podcast, I mean, getting into the scent control stuff. But you had mentioned, you know, like, maybe we just touch on a little bit. You said knowing how to take care of it properly and can you kind of touch on some of the things that you do just to to maintain your scent control equipment yep yeah i, I could easily <laughs> i could easily do a hour and a half podcast on scent control with without any problem yeah care instructions are critical you know you watched i used to give scent lock i'm on scent locks pro staff i bugged and bugged and bugged them and i'm such a a good proponent of scent lock for them that they they put me on their pro staff but i used to bug them i was like how do you let these tv guys because tvs used or i mean these companies used to sponsor a lot of tv shows they don't do it as much anymore but all of the guys that scent lock sponsored on tv shows they would wear a scent lock jacket and a pair of scent lock pants and that was it they may wear rubber boots but they wouldn't have scent lock gloves on and they would I didn't see any of them where a face, a scent lock face mask with a drop down or a scent lock head cover with a drop down face mask. And that's an absolute necessity. 
that 40% of your odor comes out of your head, hair follicles and your nose and your ears and your mouth. But most of it comes out of your hair follicles. You know, when you wash your hair in the morning, it's oily in the evening and has just a ton of bacteria. I shave my armpits even and cut my hair shorter during the season. So, you know, odor, a lot of odor comes out of your head. And when you're wearing a, just some stupid logo hat with your hair hanging out of it, you can wear all this. You can wear 20 cent lock jackets and 20 pairs of cent lock pants. It's irrelevant. You've got two flat tires on a car. 40% of your odor is coming out of your head. So um, you, you've got to do it all. Your backpack. Most guys, when they're wearing cent lock, they don't even think about their backpack. They get into their backpack with their hands two or three times a day to change out their clothing and their layering garments with their bare hands. And then they put that backpack that they've had for 10 years up in the tree and they've got all scent lock on and they got the head cover on and the gloves on and they wonder why they get winded. Well, you got a huge human scent wick in the tree with you. Everything has to work in conjunction with each other. So once you learn how to properly care for it, you know, you don't wash it. You only deabsorb it in the dryer. Um, and you, as soon as it comes out, it's stored in an airtight container. And it stays in that airtight container until you go hunting. And then when you get back from your hunt, you put it back in the airtight container until it needs to be deabsorbed. Sure. And there's a lot of other things I do. But if, if, if you, either one of you drove your vehicle and I drove behind you and we were going to hunt and you parked your vehicle and I parked behind you, I would be out of my vehicle ready to go in the woods before you would. That is a 100% guarantee. Unless you wore your clothes while you're driving. If you got to get out of your vehicle and put on your hunting clothes, I will be done before you. I, I will be out of the vehicle within three minutes. <laughs> Everybody thinks it's, oh, man, you stop your vehicle and you got to go through this big process. No, the process is like scouting for deer. 90% of the work in deer hunting is your scouting and location preparation. And then how you hunt is just the end result of all your scouting and location preparation. That's where you put in the work. The other is just the kill part. And, you know, with Snotlock, it's the same way. It's the preparation of getting everything ready and having it in the back of your vehicle where all you got to do is stop, you know, hope, you know, I jump in the back of my van because I drive a minivan or, you know, and I just open the tote, put it on and get out of the vehicle with my bow and go. Put my backpack on and go. Okay. Yeah, the the whole scent control thing is is exactly you know what you, what you said. It, you got to have all the pieces and all of the everything in in place. Much you know, like a hunt in itself, like you said, for scouting and everything. You know, you can't skip one part to to get to the other. Generally, but right. on that, I want to hear about this. You know, you, you went through all of your principles and all the things that you do, you know, to, you know, target these spots where these mature animals are going to be, uh, where you need to be. And then you just went and said that you've, you killed your biggest buck on a freelance hunt. So I, I, I don't think I've heard that story. Um, I'd like, you know, if you don't mind to sure, kind of absolutely. tell us well, how that went and, and kind of like the the freelancing type mentality, because I mean, whether it's your scent control, your speed scouting, you know, your principles, all of that is very regimented. So it doesn't yeah, seem I, like I, a freelance is a, 
big punch. Yeah, freelance doesn't fly by the seat of your ass. You're absolutely correct. Right. Uh, you're you're throwing everything up into the air, and you're saying, okay, this isn't working. I've got to adjust. <laughs> so, uh, in 1977, I killed my first freelance hunt. I went to a tree. It was a red oak that I had prepared, and it didn't have any acorns. There wasn't any sign, so I just, and that was in Michigan. I just took off through the woods, and I, I found another oak tree, and it did have acorns. It was a white oak acorn, and there was and this was on public land and there was, it was butted right up with uh, thick saplings and I shot a big buck, big buck. I could hear a buck in there chasing those after I'd been in the tree a while. And this was just standing on a branch. There was no tree stand. <laughs> and, and I, he ran this doe out right underneath me and I grunted. I had to not grunt, but I did, man, you know, three doe blasts before I got him to stop. And then I shot him. But the big one was in Iowa and I was hunting and it was a, I was there way before daylight, you know, I was going to sit all day. I had a decoy out in this one spot that I had prepared. I had already pre-prepared the place I was going. And I saw about a 130-inch A-point. And out there, I'm not shooting a 130-inch A-point. <laughs> so uh, that was the only decent buck I saw that morning. But, you know, I'm out there in mid-November during Michigan's gun season. You know, I go out, I leave Michigan during gun season because I don't gun hunt. And anyway, I could see a pretty good distance. And about 150 yards away, I could just see there was deer activity. Because there was some, kind of an open area. And then there was some heavier brush back farther. And I could see deer activity kind of skirting the edge of that brush. And it was pretty consistent. So at 10 o'clock, I got down, I pulled the decoy, put it in the military duffel bag, kind of hit it from, you know, for when I come out and I just really slowly, and I'm in full scent lock cause I was hunting. I just really slowly, and it was like 40 degrees. So it wasn't something I was going to overheat by walking. Uh, I just slowly kind of transitioned through the woods and looking around. And when I got back into that area, I found a little opening. And that's one thing about primary scrape areas. They are always in opening. 100% of the time, a primary scrape area where there's multiple scrapes in a small zone are in some semblance of an opening. And this opening was probably 20 yards in, in diameter, and there was four scrapes in it. And one of them had just been urinated in very recently. You could see the wet spot, and it had two huge clumps of deer droppings that were clumped together. And they were big. The droppings in the clumps were big. So I knew this, and it stunk. The urine was definitely from a buck. You could just smell it. It peed down its tarsals. So I, I knew this was a place where there was a big buck. It could have been the A-pointer that I saw in the morning. You know, who knows? Um, but I knew there was a big buck there coming through. So I, there was three trees there. One of them, I one of them I really wanted to be in, but I couldn't get up it. It was just too big a diameter, and my rope wouldn't go around it. So I ended up going up this other one that had a pretty severe lean, but it was only 12 yards from the main scrape. There was four scrapes. One of them was the scrape. You could just tell this was the active scrape. So I climbed up that tree about 27 feet to my feet, and I wanted to be up the bigger tree because it gave me more cover. Uh, this tree was relatively skinny, and I felt like I stuck out because the foliage was down. And um, 
and I ended up shooting that buck about 45 minutes before before dark. And you want to hear the really sad part? Yeah, what's that? I almost hate saying this because it's almost unbelievable. I ended up killing him about a half an hour before dark. But I was in that tree. I was probably sitting in the tree and had it prepped and was up in the tree and hunting probably around 1230, just afternoon a little bit. And immediately I had deer starting to transition by me. I mean, just casually marching through. Yeah, keep in mind, this is this is actually going into a little bit of post rut. The peak rut's pretty much almost over. This was like in the 20th of November. And uh, and I'm having these deer go by me, and I, a four-point and a five-point went by, and then a nice eight-point went by, and some does and fawns are going by, and, and there's no rhyme or reason. They're just moving through the area. Um, and then this big buck came, this monster buck, this 180-incher came from a totally different direction. And instead of coming into the scrape, you know, I was prepped to shoot to the scrape, which was to my left, but a little bit around to the front, because I don't like being set up totally to the side of the tree from where my shot's going to be. I like to be a little bit behind the tree with a saddle. So, so this buck, he's skirting around, and now I can see what he's doing. He's skirting around to get downwind of the scrape. He's not going to come into the actual scrape. He's going to scent check it from downwind and then move on. That's what I'm guessing he's going to do by the way he's transitioning around the outside of the scrape. So I, he got it about 35 yards, and I thought he, or he got it about what I thought was 40 yards. So I took my 35-yard pin, which was the longest pin I had, and I thought he was at 40. So I held that 35-yard pin right at the top of his back. And when I let the arrow go, I shot him right, I hit him right below the spine. I hit him between the spine and the lungs. So I hit that little void area that's about maybe two inches tall. And I could see the arrow go in because I don't shoot a really fast bow. So I could see everything in slow motion. And that buck turned around and he ran across that same little opening that I was looking across, you know, in the morning. And I see him run into a big patch of heavy brush, and which was about 80 yards. He ran about 80 yards. And I'm like, I wanted to cut my lead strap and commit suicide. That was the biggest buck I had ever seen in the woods, and I knew I did not kill that deer. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just really upset with myself. And finally, I'm like, John, this is deer hunting. You make mistakes. You know, I, I had guessed him at 40 yards, and I held high, and he was 35 yards. He was I, he, Everything happened so fast, I didn't have time to range find it. And I did have a range finder. So, uh, so I, anyway, I hit exactly where I aimed. So he was 35 yards. So I said, you know what? I saw that big eight pointer. Maybe there's another big one. I am in Iowa. There's lots of big bucks around here. Uh, so I sat and I, I did a rattle sequence about 40 minutes before dark. And I saw this monster buck come out from exactly the same spot I watched that big one go in and I thought to myself I didn't really think to myself I I mean but there was no way I would think that that was the same deer okay just that didn't even enter my mind he's just I rattled did a sparring sequence and he's coming right at me 
he's coming directly on the same exact route that after I shot him, he went into that brush. And when he gets about 50, 40, 50 yards away, I'm like, that's the same damn buck I shot a few hours ago, a couple hours ago. And sure as hell as he was coming by, he's walking right to the scrape now. He's making a beeline to that 12-yard scrape. I could see the hole where I shot through it. And when he got to that scrape, he started working that scrape, and I shot him at 12 yards, and he ran 40 yards and tipped over. Jeez. <laughs> That's the only time in my life I've ever shot a deer twice in one day. <laughs> and it was the biggest buck I've ever shot in my life. It was 180 inch, 12 foot. Well, I think for the listener, there's a there's a lot of things to take away from that because, you know, one of the things that I struggled with, like before, I don't know, I guess getting serious about hunting or, or whatever, you know, I mean, I, I hunted every chance I could get. And I thought that that was, you know, hunting, but it wasn't hunting. It was, I did that too. I I, I did that too. The more you're out there, the better your odds. And that's not the case. But, but to, to get down and move, you know, so you put in all this time, you, you were obviously confident in the spot that you were in. And then, you know, you saw that movement and saw like where you needed to be. And rather than say, well, I'm going to hunt there tomorrow or I'm going to hunt there later. You said, I need to be there right now. And, and, and making that decision. I mean, that's one of the things that I've taken away from a a lot of different guys that we've had on the podcast. And just, you know, in my own experience is like, if it's not the right spot, it's not the right spot. So you need to make a decision, you know? Yeah. You, you have to be proactive. If, if you're seeing more activity there than where you're at and you have the ability to move and prep, take the steps out of your tree. And, you know, I had to take the steps out of the tree as I went down and then I put them in that tree when I went up over there. If you got the ability to be able to do that uh, and do it pretty stealthily, uh, yeah, you need to do that. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, maybe there was a hot doe that went through there this, you know, this morning. That's always what you got to think, especially during post-rut when most of the does have already been bred. You know, if there's a hot doe, every damn buck in the area is going to try and get her because most of the bucks now are looking, they're out searching for that, those late estrus stoves. So all that stuff ran through my mind. Maybe, you know, there, there's a reason they're over there, and I need to find out why because it's not happening where I'm at. So, yeah, you have to adjust. That's the same deal with a, you know, after you get all your locations prepped and you come up with a seasonal plan, you you have to adjust if it's if it's not working and like last two years even after i adjusted nothing worked so it doesn't always work and when you're hunting in a state with a lot of pressure there you better expect seasons where you don't kill anything those aren't my first two seasons i haven't killed anything that's just to be expected when you live in an area where there's just not a lot of big bucks but iowa and kansas you know that's a different scenario there there could be five bucks in those areas that are over 20 on that one little area that's over 125 inches right <clears throat> well one of the questions i ask all of our uh, guests is what is your bow setup what bow are you shooting sight arrows i am shooting a halon x which is a little bit longer i think it's 36 inch axle to axle and i'm shooting uh, carbon express 250s or maximum reds 250s and i'm shooting a it's at 50 pounds so i'm not shooting heavy bow i shoot a pretty light bow um i shoot a carter release 
I shot fingers until two years ago. I, this is the first two years ago I started shooting. And you know what? I haven't shot a buck since I went where it is. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> All the bucks I've shot were, bit, were with a tab and, you know, with fingers. Scentlock needs uh, to make a release. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because I, I, you know, I've shot Matthews for years, and I always shot a, a Matthews Conquest, which was a 41-inch axle axle. Yeah. But I love the Halon X. They they sent me, I'm on their pro staff, they sent me a Traverse last year. I did not care for that at all. Uh, the Halon X blows that Traverse out of the water, in my opinion. And I've got one of those new ones coming this year. Um, I can't even remember what the name is. CXV or something like that. So, but I like a little bit longer axle to axle bow. I'm sorry. I say probably that VXR. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I've got a new one of those coming in 50 pounds. I and I I shot. I used to shoot at 60 pounds. I've never shot over 60. And uh, but when I shot 60, I was shooting mechanicals. But since I went down to 50 pounds, um, I just don't feel like I've got the energy to lose any energy opening up a mechanical because most of the mechanicals when i shot them were deployed from the front hmm. they were inch and a half cut sidewinders was what i used by rocket and i, I figured i probably lost 20 to 25 percent of my energy opening up the blades because they deployed from front to rear uh, now there's some pretty good ones i know ramcat makes a good one that deploys rear to, you know just from the back as soon as it hits anything the blades pop out and lock into place so I'll probably shoot those, but the last two years I shot uh, G5 Strikers, which is a fixed blade inch and an eighth cut. And in 2008, when I had shoulder surgery, Matthews made me a 40-pound fingers bow, and I shot a that big 12-point with a at 35 pounds with um, a hundred a maximum 150 in a G5 Striker inch and an eighth cut. And that deer only went 80 yards. Sweet. So, you know, it's, it's these guys, you know, and I worked at Jay's. I was an archery buyer at Jay's for five years back in the seventies. And, you know, it's, it's not, not the velocity, it's the accuracy. <laughs> you know, these guys that shoot these 70 and these big heavy bows and struggle to get them back. You know, I, I don't get it because with today's technology and velocity of arrows and speed, that's just totally not needed. Yeah, especially for the white tail. <laughs> Say you're you're sitting here talking to John. You know, you, you commented earlier uh, before the podcast on how big of a guy he is. I mean, we're looking at a sixty, an eighty, and a seventy right there. And you know, he says, "Well, yep. I like to shoot a hundred yards." You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can remember back in the. Back in the 70s and 80s when Arch or Anderson Archery was around and they had that big, you know, that bow pole who could shoot the heaviest bow. And back, back then, got a lot of guys shot 80-pound bows. I mean, I, I don't get it. And I did a DVD in 2005. I mean, it's kind of antiquated now called Archery Mechanics. And I did it at the second largest bow shop in the country, which is Shootbox Sporting Goods. Not large in square footage, but large as far as amount of bows sold in a year they're the number two in that country and uh i had an archery tech guy and we set up i'm trying to remember how we did this and again this was in 2005 so it's not the technology we have even today but we took a current bow i think it was a bow tech and it was at 
60 pounds. And obviously it was, uh, what's AMO, 30 inch draw or 28 inch draw was, it had a 350 grain arrow. Yep, 30 inch draw. And we took a 60 pound bow, shot it through a chronograph. And it was not one of the high velocity bows. It was just a regular standard cam Bowtech bow. And it shot 30 feet per second faster with the same arrow than a 70 pound bow that Brian Schubach had. Um, that was from the eight, late eighties. So, I mean, that was how much technology had changed. Brian had a, a high velocity bow for the late eighties at 70 pounds and the 60 pound bow from 2005 was 30 feet per second faster than his 70 pound bow from the late eighties. Right. So velocities of bows are just unreal to me. If you start getting over 260 feet per second, you almost have to be a bow technician and keep your bow perfectly tuned to shoot a fixed blade broadhead over an inch and an eighth or an inch and a quarter cut. And that's kind of why mechanical is one of the reasons they came out is because people, you know, they, the bows were getting up into that 280, 300, and now they're, you know, 320, 340 feet per second, and they just wouldn't shoot fixed blade heads. It just went plain too bad. Yeah. You had to keep it perfectly tuned. So with mechanicals, that wasn't a problem. And they had enough energy to open them up. Right. Yeah. They're way less forgiving. I mean, Adam was just saying how my new bow that I just got, I just got the, the new PSE um, Evo NTN, and I got it in 60 pounds. Like, And it's got a 7-inch brace height, and it's super, super forgiving. And yep. I can still shoot 100 yards with it. You know, it's not like I'm going to shoot an animal at a hundred yards. I just like, I just sure. like stretching it out and, you know, having fun with it. But. I wished I could, John, I used to shoot in leagues and I, me and my team won every year we shot in league and I've got a tremor now and yeah, I, at 35 yards, I'm, I, I, I just don't feel comfortable shooting over 35 yards and I've, and, and I really don't like shooting over 25 to be honest with you and my, and my. My chip shots, my go-to is I try to set my locations up for 15 to 18 yards. Perfect. And so, John, you, you've mentioned your your books and some, you know, the DVDs and stuff that, that you've done um, in the past. Uh, what are some of the things you're working on now and how can people, uh, you know, get a hold of you or follow along with what you're doing? Well, along with my sons, we've got a new YouTube channel that should be launched this next week uh it's going to be called eberhardt's outdoors and it's going to be uh it's going to be what i always do it's going to be on instructional bow hunting uh, gear um you know scouting just instructional stuff uh you know there may be times in there where we go fishing but it's primarily going to be based around deer hunting um and i still do whitetail workshops i've been doing them for those for three years uh, basically, they're all, I only do those in March and April because I want to do it during postseason. That's when I think people that come to those can take the most away from it. Um, and that's a two-day event, uh, $600 for two days per person. And I limit the amount of people. And basically, the first day we're in the field all day, we visit uh, about 14 preset locations. I have to do it on private ground. I got a farmer that let me do it on his property can't do it on public because I'm not going to give away my hunting locations and also 
I, everybody can't bring waiters because they went to any of my locations. They have to wear some stuff. So anyway, we visited about 14, 12 to 14 locations. Uh, I, I explained entry routes, exit routes, seasonal timing, uh, daily timing for each location. Um, you know, how, you know, you walk through the field and then make a beeline to the tree line to get into your tree and then you exit out the swamp area so you don't spook anything with your evening at tree or your after dark, you know, exit. Um, and then day two, and we go over a lot of stuff. Also, we have about a two to three hour saddle session at the end, and that's just open for whoever wants to stay. We set up saddles. We set up three trees close to each other, about 20 inches off the ground, just one step up. And uh, so we have different saddles with some, one will have a platform, one will have a, a ring of uh, strap-on steps, and then the other one will have a ring of screw-in steps and everybody can get up in it and try the saddles, and I show them how to properly use it. And our YouTube videos are going to show all that stuff, too. And then day two is an all-day uh, seminar at Jay's Sporting Goods, and Jay's Sporting Goods gives everybody a 15% discount for a week. So even if you're out of state, half the guys come are out of state, and, and they can buy stuff online after they go home if they fly in. So, And Jay's has a really nice seminar room. They got office chairs, padded office chairs, um, just a really nice, and I've got, I think, 38 of my, I got 60, I think 68 bucks in J's hanging on the wall, so <laughs> we can look at, look at those too, and, and we go for lunch each day, and it's kind of, it's kind of cool, it's, it's kind of fun, so, and that's, uh, and also, along with you, Adam, we, we're kind of, starting we did that first uh, vitals live thing on monday and we're doing another one tomorrow so that's going to be kind of interesting how that's going to work because they're going to be interviewing dan dan infault and hopefully the hunting public tom nelson uh the tethered boys garrett prawl uh they got a lot of people online to to do interviews and that's a membership only deal but that it's going to be really exciting to me to see how that takes off because that's kind of new that's kind of a new technology into the hunting market it's used in other stuff but it's the first time anybody's done it on the hunting side yeah so that's the i think you can check that out at the vitalslive.com and basically yeah. it's an interactive online seminar um with all of these um you know really great informational hunters and then you've got guys like me that'll be moderating it from time to time and keeping <laughs> keeping these guys on topic so keeping us honest <laughs> right um yeah but on those there's uh opportunities to ask questions uh whether it's just uh typing a question or um you know you can go on there and i can patch you in and you can actually ask the question yourself um and uh we 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 did that pretty successfully i'd say on the the first go around yep. And it's going to be kind of interesting because it's a unique format. He's going to, like I'm doing another webinar tomorrow. So I did one Monday and tomorrow with Adam as being the moderator. And then on Sunday, a week from Sunday, it's going to be strictly an open Q&A session. So each, each person, like when Dan comes in, he's going to do the same. He's going to do two, two live webinars, and then there's going to be a follow-up where it's going to strictly be a Q&A webinar where people can ask questions. And they can see us on, you know, we're on screen while they're watching. So um, 
kind of live. And we showed last night, we showed some maps and, and, uh, some different stuff. So it's, it's, it's different. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's going to be a, a, a work in progress. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really interesting, really fun way to interact. You know, it's, it's one thing to listen on a podcast. Um, and then it's another thing to, you know, be in the room and, and, and get to have your voice heard, I guess. Um, yep. and then what is your website? Um, John, if people want to check out your books or want oh, to contact okay. you or anything like that. Yep. Uh, pretty simple. It's dear D E E R hyphen, which is the little dash John.net dear hyphen John.net or Eberhardt's whitetail workshops.com. But dear www.deerhyphen. All you got to do is, Google my name and it'll pop up. So that's pretty simple to find. And my books are on there and my DVDs and uh, all the explanations about signing up for the workshops. I don't have the dates posted yet for the 2021 workshops, uh, but I will probably in the next few months. Um, yeah, that's about well, awesome, John. I think that's kind of all we got for this evening. I mean, I know you and I are going to be talking here <laughs> quite a bit here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Coming up in the next uh, <laughs> few weeks. So, um, you know, I really appreciate you having on, having you on and, uh, you know, taking the time for us uh, this evening. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure.